Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 73 of the Double Density Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Angelo. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal primers. First things first, Angelo, how are you today? I have to say, uh, right out the gate, it is weird. We're recording in the middle of the day. I'm not used to this. I'm used to sitting in the darkness, uh, talking into a microphone. Now I see everything around me. It's a little weird. How do you feel about this? I wasn't actually sure you would let people uh, peek behind the curtain and say that we were recording at a different uh, time of day. Uh, but yeah, this is fun. I can actually see uh, everything around me. It's light outside. It's kind of weird because people can kind of look into my house and see that I'm recording and wonder what their crazy neighbor is actually doing. How often do you think they do that, though? Because I, I don't feel like they do. I think, well, the thing is, is that you can't really see inside my house during the day, right? Because it's brighter on the outside. That's how light works. Uh, and my curtains are closed in the evening, so they don't see me either at night. So uh, yeah. Uh, I don't think anybody really knows I record a podcast in my neighborhood because right. <laughs> nobody really speaks English in this neighborhood. You haven't handed out any flyers yet? No, and yeah, so there's very few people that actually listen to this show that live anywhere near me. If anybody lives near me and listens to this show, I'd be really interested in knowing that. Uh, do you want to list out your full home address? I do well not, actually. Oh, okay. Well. But if you live in, in the South Shore area of Montreal uh, and you listen to the show, I'd be curious to know. I've actually had multiple coworkers come up to me recently and tell me that they've started listening to the show. So uh, hello to everyone who I know personally who started listening. Thanks for the listens. Oh, wow. Thank you. Recording the day is like only uh, one of the interesting things about this episode, right, Angelo? Yeah, this is, uh, is going to be like a, a nostalgia-based episode for the tech segment. Uh, right. Because uh, we're doing, so usually we do a series of uh, news items, but this week uh, we kind of decided to take things in a different direction. This is something that we've been working on uh, over the last couple of months together, and I'm very excited to do this. So uh, basically, we're saying goodbye to summer hours officially, right? Like everyone's back in school right now. You know, the fall foliage is beginning to appear. Uh, and we feel like uh, it's time to bring school into session. And so we decided to take everyone here with us on a journey this week through the different innovations in portable audio technology. Yeah. So the good news is uh, with this is that, you know, there are no papers, there are no projects and no final exams. So we're just going to ask people to tune in and turn it up as we get into an in-depth look at the devices that have kind of shaped our landscape over the last 60 to 65 years or so. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there was only one major news story we needed to work on this week, and that's already been covered in our bonus episode, which uh, you should go back and listen to. So we figured this would be uh, a lot of fun to present. And uh, FYI, Brian did most of the work on this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I did uh, most of the research, but it, it takes two to make this podcast, right? It does, and uh, I'm really excited to see where this goes. All right, so let's start things off by going back into the past a bit. So we're going to go to 1954, specifically October 18th, 1954, which was the release of the Regency TR1 transistor radio. So this is the first mass-produced transistor radio. So 150,000 of them were sold. And the transistor tech mainly beforehand, before uh, it was the, the transistor radio was commercially available, was mostly used in private sector industrial applications or used by the military. So um, the TR-1 is actually like a highly sought after collector's item because of 150,000 of them in 1954. You know, they're considered a commodity. A lot of them broke. People threw them out. This was uh, battery operated. It operated on a 22 volt battery. Um, and there aren't that many in existence. I'm not sure how many there are, but it's probably substantially less than 150,000. They weren't exactly the best built uh, radios in the world. They were just kind of, uh, wouldn't you say like almost like a novelty item at that point? Yeah, like I think just, that like all of these sorts of like different kinds of little tech uh, were definitely uh, novelty items at the moment, right? And this one didn't have a headphone jack, right? No, it didn't. Uh, I, you know, you did bring back a memory when I, when uh, I sounded Italian there. You did bring back a memory. <laughs> 
You did bring back a memory for me about uh, finding this old little radio in my house uh, when I was a kid. Uh, it must have been purchased by my grandfather or my dad, and it was just hanging around the house, probably from the 60s or early 70s. And it had a headphone jack, and it had one of those little nubby headphone thingies. Uh, like, oh, like it was the plastic like a, covers? Yeah, it was like a yeah. one little earbud, so it was definitely mono. It went, one, it went to one ear, and that's it. It was just like a regular old AM radio. I don't even think it had FM on it. Oh, maybe not at that point. I mean, in the 60s, it was all AM, right? Until you, uh, the sort of application of the, uh, the, the band of FM waves, right? In the late 60s, early 70s that were uh, created and used mostly by music stations. Yeah, I, uh, you know a lot more about that history because I think you actually learned that in school, didn't you, Ryan? We touched upon it in some of the courses I took uh, in university, yeah. And I forgot to mention at the top of this item, we'll be playing the number one song uh, on the Billboard chart of that date, or in this case, it's the box score chart, um, uh, of when these different inventions uh, came to market. So for October 18th, 1954, the number one single on the charts of that date was Rosemary Clooney's Hey There. And... Um... No one's going to take down this podcast, right? You're not going to be playing the whole song. Just no, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so my question to you is, what were your earliest memories of listening to the radio? And did you have one like in your room? Like, was there one shared in the home? There was an interesting giant radio in my grandparents' apartment. Like, you know, and I think it's still in my parents' basement now. They, they kept it after my grandparents passed away. And it's, it's huge, right? It's like bigger than a TV. It's one of those like stand-up radios that they people would gather around and listen to, and it had these big giant white buttons on it. And uh, the thing is, is actually, I don't think it actually ever worked when I like before. It only worked before I was born. Like, and once I was alive, this this thing was just a piece of furniture that my grandparents put like stuff on it. Uh, so I remember that as a radio. But in terms of listening to the radio and music, we had um, a receiver with a turntable on top of it. With, right. Uh, uh, yes. So uh, we, I would listen to often the Star Wars soundtrack on vinyl. Oh. And just like the regular radio, I, I don't, I don't really, I didn't really know how it worked. I thought it was interesting to kind of just go between bands and hear static and try to pick up weird signals, even though you really couldn't. Right. For me, I was one of those uh, kids whose parents turned the radio on as like a sleeping mechanism, like as a sleep aid when I was a kid. So I used to fall asleep listening to our local AM talk radio station, CJD here. So I'd fall asleep to the sounds of uh, DJ Peter Anthony Holder, the different people that he was interviewing. Um, I remember uh, I was like six or seven. I woke up in the middle of the night. And uh, it was like one of these, like, I don't remember who it was, but one of those, like the, those doctors that you call in for like, for help, like you, you, you had life conundrums and you call in. Yeah. And I remember there was bumper music and it was Soft Style's cover of Tainted Love. And it terrified me for some reason because it sounded so artificial. I mean, I was like six or seven, right? And so the whole thing in the middle of the night kind of sounded spooky to me. Well, when I got older and I had a, a stereo in my room, I think I got it when I was like 16, I did listen to CJD as well. Uh, again, local radio station here. And um, I never would catch the paranormal show that was on there, but I would listen to like the baseball talk show and fall oh, asleep yeah. to that, even though right. I really had not much interest in baseball. But... <laughs> Uh, the host of it was kind of fun because he would kick people off the air. Oh, well, that's even better. Uh, another thing that terrified me, too, is during the middle of the night, if I'd wake up and um, uh, the the sentence, this is a pre-recorded program, please do not call in, sounded like a weird warning to me as a child. And I don't know why it terrified me, too. Well, this is a pre-recorded program, so please don't call in. <laughs> yeah, all of our phone lines are currently closed. But yeah, for some reason, as a kid, even though it was clearly not destined for me and it was kind of an innocuous kind of uh, comment as an adult, it, it terrified me because it sounded like people were trying to call in and that the station was fed up of it. You know, it makes me think, like, we're talking about when we were kids, we would listen to whatever was on the radio, but this is such a foreign idea to my children, where, what do you mean you can't just listen to the thing you want to listen to when you want to listen to it? Right, it it was kind of given to you, and you had to sit there and take it. 
Yeah, they literally have millions and millions of songs at their fingertips. I do sound like an old man when I say stuff like this. I realize it. I'm very aware. But it still like marvels my mind that like the kids have anything they want to listen to whenever they want to. Right. That's a very, very good point, actually. Like, we had to go to the record store and buy uh, CDs like animals. Right. Well, and we'll get into more of that, that later. Tapes. We'll, get, we'll get into more of that later. Oh, yeah. Um, so we move in from the 50s to the 60s, and uh, obviously these transistor radios are built better um more compact longer lifespan and so we hit the early 70s and uh something called the stereo belt is invented The stereo belt uh, was never commercially available, so its creator is a man named Andres Pavel and he created this belt that literally played cassettes and had headphones in. So this is sort of like uh, a Walkman uh of the past and uh it, it, I looked this up and it really makes me think of like something James Bond would use. Q is busy building this for him. Yeah. Um, but the crazy thing is like, this is kind of like the, the Rosetta Stone or rather like the, the big, like the largest ancestor of the Walkman, the iPod, every MP3 player that came after it. It's kind of like, this is all built and predicated upon this. Right. So um, Pavel creates this and he has this test in February, March of 1972. And he decides to listen to Herbie Mann and Dwayne Allman's push push, which is what we just heard. And uh, as he was listening to this, he felt like he was floating the first time he used it. Right. Cause normally um, uh, music fills a room, but in this case it filled his head because it was a very personal journey um given through headphones i actually remember the first time that happened to me and it was with uh, a walkman which we'll be discussing soon and i was at the beach and it was just weird how it looked like everybody heard the music i was listening to right like that weird synchronicity that happens when you hear a song and like the world around you kind of moves to it yeah, and now it's just second nature. Like, I'm always listening to something as I go to work or whatever, and, like, I literally have headphones right now, except I'm not listening to music. I'm listening to the sound of my own voice and yours. That's true. And um, uh, getting back to the stereo belt, though, so the in- really interesting thing is that Pavel shopped it around to Norv of tech giants, including Yamaha and Philips, and uh, they passed on it, surprisingly enough. So uh, with the invention of, of the Walkman in the early 80s, so uh, we also need to note that Pavel um, held different patents for um, the concept and a lot of the features of the stereo belt. So he ends up uh, in litigation because he wants to sue Sony because his creation and then years later, the creation of the Walkman seemed very, very similar. So uh, they go through about two decades worth of fights. And apparently, uh, so the last time that they were in court in the early 2000s, it seemed as though a settlement was reached. And reportedly, uh, there was a cash payout of over uh, $10 million and ongoing royalties over certain Walkman models that kind of infringed upon the stereo belt's model. This is uh, the correct use of patents, I think. It's, he wasn't a patent troll or anything. It was just something that uh, did happen. Although, poor guy, it took like 30 years for it to kind of get figured out. Right. I, I, just, I just find it incredible that all of these different tech giants pass on it. You know, um, just the idea of easy portability like that, you'd think would be a big seller, even at a larger price point, right? Yeah. Well, if you uh, go check out the Wikipedia article, it's like they said uh, nobody would ever want to wear headphones in public. <laughs> that, that was their reason <laughs> little uh, how, did they know yeah exactly exactly um so let's move over from the micro portable to sort of like a larger thing and by that i mean the boom box
the JVC RC 550 was blasting out tunes like the Bee Gees Night Fever, which was the number one single on the Billboard Top 100 uh, during the time of uh, the JVC RC 550's rollout in 1978. Super fascinating. So we go from like, you know, the, the stereo belt, which was in your ears, to the boombox, which is meant to be brought out in public places and uh, uh, powered by batteries. Yeah. Um, funny story that kind of connects uh, different topics we often talk about on the show. Um, I got a boombox for Christmas one year, but it almost turned out that I would have gotten an Atari 7800 instead. Which one uh, would you have preferred? Well, I wanted video games, but um, I took a, like, and I was at the store with my parents. Like, they're like, oh, let's just, they didn't want to, like, screw around and get me something I didn't want. So, like, let's go to the store, see what you want to get. And uh, it ended up being between this boombox or uh, they didn't have any NESs left because I think this was, like, 1988 and it was, like, the hot item that, that, that Christmas. And, uh, they had a ton of Atari 7800s left. They're like, oh, I want video games. So I had a ColecoVision that was, you know, obsolete at this point. Nobody really played Coleco games anymore. Couldn't find any games. I passed on the 7800 and I ended up getting uh, this boombox, which I'll put a link to. I actually found a picture of it. And it's still at my parents' house. I could take an actual picture of it, but I won't uh, get to my parents' house before uh, this episode comes out. So uh, next best thing, I, I literally looked up four-speaker boombox and I found it. And um, you'll see a picture of it. It had like four big speakers in the front and all these stuff for like the cassette, cassettes and equalizer and stuff was on top. It was a pretty cool looking boombox for a kid uh, of like what I was like 11 years old. And uh, it was pretty cool. But I'm glad I held off for the NES because I think uh, my video game playing may have been pretty different if I would have got a 7800. Because uh, there's no way I would have convinced my parents to get me another video game system just a few months later for my birthday. Right. Uh, so actually that leads into the question I had for this section is, did your parents like have rules uh, growing up about like what you could and couldn't listen to, how loud it'd have to be, et cetera, et cetera? Not really. My parents didn't really care about that stuff. They're like Italian immigrants. They didn't listen to the same music as me. Uh, and I, I wasn't like, I was a very, uh, let's say good little kid. Milk I didn't, toast. Uh, yeah. I, it's like, uh, I remember we... Some friends had brought like Def Leppard to listen to at like a birthday party, and we're like, "Oh, I'm I don't know about that. That's a scary looking uh, picture on the the cassette. So let's not play that." Do you remember like uh, what you played the most on that particular stereo? Like throughout the years, like what was the one? Well, I remember having a cassette of The Knack, like with my Sharon on it and stuff like that, that it would play often enough. I don't know why where I got that cassette. I think it was like in a in a deal bin at like the pharmacy. And uh, it's not like I, I used to go out and buy cassettes that often. Uh, a lot of things taped off the radio as well. I used to listen to a copy of Thriller I taped off the radio, which uh, was cut off. You know like how there's a laugh at the end of Thriller? Yes. Well, it was, the song ended, the DJ cut in saying like the call sign of the radio, and then the laugh came on. So I thought that was a novel thing. I remember for me, yeah, I also used to record a lot of stuff off of the radio. And I was talking to a coworker about this recently, but the, the major annoyance of like when you were younger and heard a newer song, but it was in the middle of a block and the DJ would announce the first song, the second song would play, the song you were interested in, and then the third song would play. And then the DJ would talk about the third song, but never mention the second song. So for example, the Spice Girls wannabe, I remember explicitly on the cassette writing, uh, I didn't know what else to call it. So I put down Spice Girls Zig a Zig Ah. Because <laughs> I didn't know what it was, right? So uh, 
that kind of happened. And uh, I, I kind of have a really interesting kind of history with the boombox because we had one of the old Radio Shack ones. And uh, it still worked up right until I think my parents are still using it now. But uh, it had the interesting feature where you could uh, dub and record stuff. And it had a mini microphone hole. So uh, my friend and I, when we were, I was 10, he was 8, we would start recording cassettes of ourselves pretending to have uh, this whole radio station called Weirder Radio, which is a moniker that I kind of used online in a bunch of places. And uh, I just remember filling up different cassettes and, you know, like uh, sitting there with a piece of paper and kind of like writing out a programming day in my mind of how like the different blocks go. Like I was very intense about this. You were destined to have a podcast, weren't you? I was. And so we continued this onwards and upwards, I'd say, until about uh, 2001 and 2002. And I recently sent you an MP3. And I'm going to be playing a clip, a short clip here of uh, my friend and I in our pubescent ears, uh, even lampooning uh, Coast to Coast AM. Welcome to AM Coast to Coast Live with Mark Johnson. I am your host, Mark Johnson. Tonight we'll be talking about a very particular sort of event. It's called UFOs. Now, if you have any stories of any UFOs, please don't be afraid to call us up and share a bit. We'll be very interested in finding out what you think of these things. And if you've had any experiences, please elaborate on them. Thank you. Okay, we have a first caller. Oh boy, it says Nevada. Okay. We're going to go live to a certain man named Johnson. Johnson, you're on the air. You sound like a child. You really sound young in that clip. It's pretty funny. The crazier thing, though, is that I have earlier stuff that I sound even more pubescent in. And uh, it's very weird to hear. But yeah, I, I just wanted to sort of like uh, share that with all of you uh, as I was like kind of doing research for this episode. Because uh, I found it really interesting and weird how long I've been doing this, I guess would be the best way of putting it. Like, kind and of the just... same thing, too, talking about paranormal and stuff like that. It's pretty oh, funny. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I decided to sort of uh, drop that in there. But yeah, we, we continue. To, I, I wish I still knew where the original tapes were because at one point, maybe uh, nine or 10 years ago, I had the original tape. We had, like the first one you'd ever, ever, ever done. And uh, I don't know what happened to it, unfortunately. Now I'm going to see if I can dub it um, onto a computer at one point if I can refine it. But yeah, it was really interesting to sort of hear that I've been at this for like 20 years at this point. What would you use to dub it onto a computer? Like just literally next to a speaker or what? No, I would use the microphone jack plugging into the uh, the microphone plug in an okay. older PC and just hit record on the audio recorder there. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Double Density presents the sounds of your youth. So let's move from 1978, the gigantic boombox in all of our hearts, uh, you know, the one that uh, radio plays in uh, Do the Right Thing, and move back to the micro. So the Mark I Sony Walkman out on July 1st, 1979. The f- number one single on the Billboard Top 100 at the time was Anita Ward's Ring My Bell. Disco Fever was in full swing. Uh, Angelo, any comments about the Walkman before I get into mine? Well, I just realized it's the 40th anniversary uh, next year. On That's the right. Same, uh, on Canada Day. That's right. <laughs> uh, I love the Walkman. I, I had one as a kid. Uh, I had one of the, uh, in terms of the actual Sony Walkman. We had a one of those yellow ones. The, the waterproof ones? Yes. You know which ones I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you also have the, the, yellow, I, the yellow headphones too? Yeah, that's like the one the I had gray? at the beach that time. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, we had a Panasonic one that was similar. Again, Panasonic made yellow ones as well. Uh, similar to that. But yeah, no, the Sony one was the main one and it worked really, really well. Uh, they were built to last back then. So I want our, our listeners to go ahead and open up the Wikipedia entry in our show notes for 
the Sony Walkman. And if you take a look at the shape, it's a very interesting shape. Uh, and it might be recognizable to some as the Mark I Walkman uh, was grown out of the Pressman, which was a recording device primarily used by journalists with the tinier tapes. Oh, yeah. That's so if you look at the shape, it's very, very, very similar in terms of the button position as well as like where the tape is. Um, and so uh, it was grown out of that. Sony had decided to sort of pivot towards the larger commercial market and less sort of like the niche. Uh, my question to you uh, in this segment is uh, what was what were your first mixtapes like? Like, did you ever make mixtapes for people? What sorts of songs were you throwing into a mixtape? I mean, I mean, I know that you just had mentioned Thriller, but I'm just kind of curious, like what else were you hitting uh, play and record simultaneously on? I have a hard time remembering what my mixtapes were. I did have, uh, I really liked the Beatles. That was like my biggest uh, musical influence when I was a kid. The Beatles, uh, I really enjoyed that. It was a lot of uh, mixed Beatles songs on on one on one tape. But the, I didn't really have it in me to like do that stuff. I would get mixtapes from friends and stuff. Um, but in that time, it was mostly about video games for me, right? It was less about uh, music when I was like 11, 12, 13, when the Walkman was popular. Because then at that point, we were transitioning to CDs. Um, one, one comment, though, about this original Walkman, it's aged very well. It looks like really nice still now it does yeah it really it, really does it looks like a nice piece of technology to, and i love the orange button yeah going back to the walkman about the boombox i was in urban outfitters the other day and they actually like um they have like newer models of these devices where you can play cassettes yeah but it's such a hipsterish place that yeah <laughs> it's like they it's like they do it ironically it's almost like an insult yeah i uh... I agree with that. I also think there's something to be said with the craftsmanship. I think a lot of these were built to survive. Like the boombox that my parents has, the, the realistic brand boombox that my parents have in their basement still works. Uh, still picks up radio. It can still play tapes. Yeah, it's impressive that these things still work. I have a, a working uh, iPod Gen 3 uh, somewhere in the house, but still, I can't really get much music onto it. I, it, it requires Firewire, and uh, I don't really have Firewire anymore. But you do have the music in your heart. So apart from Thrill, you can't really remember many of the mixtapes that you had made as a kid. It's so hard to remember. It's like, it's a long time ago, Brian. I'm pretty old. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned Alanis at all. Well, okay. But that's later. Like, I'm I'm not thinking about it that way, right? Uh, Yes, I did make mixtapes with Alanis and uh, uh, what else? Like, uh, you know, Nirvana, all that stuff I did. But that was uh, later in the 90s. Were you a grunge dude? Not really a grunge dude, but I did like, uh, I liked Pearl Jam, I liked Nirvana, I liked uh, Stone Temple Pilots, uh, I dabbled in Creed, which I used to kind of make fun of, because I would say, you know, like, just change the D to a P, and they're uh, an STP cover band, because, like, they're, you know, uh, didn't you find, what's his name, Scott Stapp, is that what his Scott name? Stapp, yeah. Yeah, he was doing a hardcore impression of Scott Whalen. Well, they even had the f- same first name. He also uh, kind of uh, aped a little bit of... Uh... Some Pearl Jam in there too, I think vocally. Yeah, it was like a mix of the two. So, I uh, firstly, how dare you talk? How dare you talk crap about Creed? A guitarist, Mark Tremonti, is an incredible guitarist. Okay, Go listen to his solo stuff Tremonti. or his Alter Bridge stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say like I like the guitar work on that. It's just the singing, and it just got on my nerves because it was. I felt it sort of derivative of like the big three, let's say of uh, of that time, which in my mind were STP, uh, Pearl Jam, and Nirvana. Right. So what I want you to do is after we record, I want you to go listen to the song Bullets by Creed. 
and I want you to t- to come back and give me a report on what you think because I th- I find that I think you might actually like it a lot. Uh, also, to our listeners out there, we're kind of curious. What were your first mixtapes like? You can go ahead and let us know on Twitter via double underscore density, facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing on Instagram. You get over to double density on it and click on the contact button and list off some of the songs that you remember putting onto your mixtapes. For me, it was a mixture of radio hits like uh, Chubbawabba's Tub Thumping, oh boy. Uh, the, the aforementioned Spice Girls, uh, Oasis, a lot of Oasis for yes. some reason, uh, like uh, Wonderwall, Don't Look Back in Anger. I'm um, just trying to think what else off the radio at that time I was really, really into. Oh, Gangsta's Paradise. Oh, yeah, that was a big hit. People yeah. love that song. Yeah, and so like there was a lot of uh, hit and play and recorded at the same time for me, and sort of like hoping that I caught the entire song. Oh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers cover of "Love Roller Coaster" too was was a staple of mine. Whenever I heard that on the radio, I tried to record it. <laughs> Red Hot Chili Peppers. I I kind of lost my thing for them. I I did see them live with uh, Stone Temple Pilots. Right. That's. Uh, Hey, uh, were we talking about that concert? Yeah, one of the four concerts you've been to. I thought the last concert you went to was like Tool or something. Yeah, I, I remember going to Tool, but I also went to Dave Matthews Band a few years ago as well. I don't know when. Is that outside? No, that was inside at the at the Bell Center. Okay, okay. Or so Molson finally, Center like, at that time. you lied to me uh, several episodes ago when you had said that you hadn't seen a concert gone out in like 15 years. Like Dave Matthews was a couple years ago. No, it wasn't a couple years ago. This is like uh, stay time. Oh, wait. Like, this so is... like 97? Like Crash? No, not crash. Post crash. What's the uh, oh, the one with the water? Like, right, I did it. Oh, uh, before these Carter streets. Yeah, that's it. Right, okay. like like two thousand something. We're playing a music detective here on Double Density. <laughs> uh, let's move on from nineteen seventy nine to uh, November nineteen eighty four. The number one single at the time on the Billboard Top one hundred for that month uh, was shared for the first couple of weeks by Billy Ocean's Caribbean Queen, and then Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go Go. I think the Discman um, speaks to us as a people who grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, right? Yes, and when you put this on the show notes, I thought it was a mistake because 1984 seemed really early for a Discman. But uh, yeah, there it was out at that time. Although I can't imagine it worked that well in comparison to a Walkman. I'm pretty sure people just kept Walkmans at that point because they were probably smaller and didn't skip. Yeah, so the anti-skip technology was perfected over a series of decades, I'd say, at that point, right? Really hidden its zenith or peak um, late 90s in terms of yes. stability. Uh, before that, yeah, you kind of had to not move much or else you'd uh, have a song that would skip over and over and over. And the uh, Mark I Discman retailed for about $600 Canadian in today's money. Yeah, that's way too expensive, and uh, the Walkman worked so well. Most people had tapes, not discs. They were probably scared to break their discs as well. And they were expensive. So I that's why in my head, the Discman wasn't something until the mid-90s. Yeah. I mean, like, foreseeably, like, the idea that you could bring a Discman over to someone's house and plug it into speakers was one thing. But portably bringing it comfortably was um, sort of uh, a disaster. Yes, uh, pretty much. Um, and again, 1984, that time, the Walkman, it was basically hitting its peak, if not even still on the way up. Right. So my question to you about this is, uh, let's talk about your CD wallet that you used to bring around, right? Like, because everyone kind of did at one point. What, like, if you had to, like, if we had to, like, unzip and open up your CD wallet um, together as, like, sort of like a time capsule, like, what is in there for you? Okay, there was Jagged Little Pill. Yep. Um, There was some Jewel in there. Some Case Choice. 
um, most likely um, Cocoon Crash. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> yes. Some Pearl Jam, Led yeah. Zeppelin. I yeah. have the box set of Led Zeppelin, so I'd have to put those in sleeves. Uh, Lisa Loeb. Right. I was a very big. What Lisa was your Loeb. favorite Lisa Loeb song? Um, it would probably be uh, Taffy. Okay, that's a good um, one. Yeah, and um, Waiting for Wednesday was really good too. Stay is obviously ob- amazing. Yeah, but, but I, I feel like that's like it's a little too easy to go to that, right? Yeah. Uh, later on, there would be some um, Matthew Good in there. Right. Um, can you tell I'm going alphabetically yeah. from the list? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, like uh, Metallica, Radiohead, those are definitely in there. Um, Tori Amos was a big hit for me, and uh, Veruca Salt. Oh, Veruca Salt Seether. Yep. And uh, more so, actually, their second album, which was trashed by Rolling Stone for some reason, but was still an awesome album. Are you still holding a grudge like 20 years later? I remember later? reading that Rolling Stone article and wondering what the hell that person listened to because it was such a good album. <laughs> uh, for me, it was like Our Lady Peace is Clumsy. Oh, that was in there too. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Navigating Clumsy. Uh, Method Man's uh, Tikal, which Definitely was like his first solo. Not my uh, I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, there's there's so much. Like the, the first two Korn albums. Ugh. Uh, Limp Bizkit. Ugh. Uh, I'm unashamed of these things, though, as you know. So I don't really care. Go ahead and judge me. Limp Bizkit ruined uh, uh, Woodstock for me. Uh, I think Woodstock ruined Woodstock. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was a horrible mistake, I think. It was... Um, oh, uh, you just reminded me, though. Woodstock 94, which was the good Woodstock. Uh, that was uh, the revival of Woodstock. Uh, Nine Inch Nails had a great set, and I also had uh, some Nine Inch Nails. Which Nine Inch Nails at record? Um, Downward Spiral. Oh, oh, the classic. Yeah, that was a good one. Have you seen Nine Inch Nails live? No, I've never seen Nine Inch okay. Nails live. They... So... I never knew much about Nine Inch Nails. I thought they were a band. I thought they were like a, these scary guys. But no, it was always just Trent Reznor and the band was like hired guns. Yeah, right. Well, these days he's hanging out with Atticus Ross a lot, right? So when they're making soundtracks uh, a bunch. But uh, one of the original incarnations of Nine Inch Nails had uh, uh, Richard Patrick, brother Robert Patrick, right? The T-1000. He left Nine Inch Nails to create Filter. Yes, I saw... Um, there's a really good documentary called Hired Guns on um, Netflix. And he's in that. And he talks about how... He was paid so badly by Nine Inch Nails. And uh, when he started Filter, uh, he decided to pay the people in Filter also really badly because <laughs> that's how he learned his lesson. So uh, kind of like a full circle there. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, most of that movie is financed by uh, Five Finger Death Punch's uh, Jason Hook. Well, he's in it. Who plays guitar, yeah. Yeah, he's in it. He's like one of the main characters in that movie, if you can call uh, someone in a documentary a character but oh, well, a persona like a persona right yeah an individual yeah and i really enjoyed it. Uh, it it's fun to see these incredibly talented musicians just go around from band to band so let's move on from the 80s to the 90s we're hitting up the mini disc mark one And the number one single uh, uh, at that time, September 1992, was The Boys to Men, End of the Road. Did you ever have a mini disc? Did you ever have a chance to use one? No. Can we safely say the mini disc was a flop? <sighs> it's hard to say because the mini disc was used in the 90s and 2000s as a recording device. I don't know if you know this, but when I was in school, it was sort of the tail end of using a mini disc recorder to record interviews. Yeah, so it was beta. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Well, the beta wasn't portable, and uh, the Mini does had a shelf life of over 15 years at this point, right? If not more. That's so true. I don't the, the, know if I'd call it an outright flop. It, it definitely is a minor character in the audio and the portable audio uh, pantheon, but it, it still exists. The main thing I remember about the mini disc was that they were a sponsor of uh, my favorite soccer team, Juventus, and they were on the <laughs> they were on the jersey I got uh, from my family in Italy in the mid nineties. Like the it says Sony on my thing, and I think some of the variants of the jersey, not mine, but some of them had it said Sony mini disc. Sony really owned the market at this point. I mean, everyone wanted, everyone wanted a Sony product. They were the Apple of the time in, in consumer electronics, right? So they may have not have been the best, but they were the brand for uh, major consumer products, including the Discman and the Walkman, right? Well, so much so that uh, Steve Jobs really admired Sony. And there's a story about him wanting them, uh, people at Apple, to like nail the orange color on a Sony remote control. Right. Yes, yes. I remember vaguely reading something about this. Yes. Yeah, and he went nuts for them to try and get this color right somewhere. And uh, it was a huge process for the people involved. So let us move on from the early 90s to the late 90s. I'm talking about March 1998. The number one song in the Billboard 100 for the month of March 1998 was Will Smith's Getting Jiggy With It. And we're going to be talking about the MP Man. So this is the first solid state digital audio player it started with a hard drive of 16 megs and it could go up to 64 megs uh all of the audio though had to be an mp3 format uh the first experience i had with a portable mp3 player was the one most people probably knew and it was the diamond rio oh right Uh, yes it was a big thing when they came in at the uh big box electronics store i worked at people were very excited but as a music snob myself uh, back then uh, i said cd was better quality and back then it really was. MP3 sounded like garbage back then. Uh, well, it depends how you were ripping them, right? Most people didn't know that. They would just download it from Napster. And that's another thing. Like, the music was never attributed properly. And uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but I like to have things organized a very certain way. And it drove me crazy that there were so many things incorrectly attributed on Napster that I hated using it. I never really used Napster that much. Uh, I always preferred, if anything, to rip my own mp3s because and then do it at yourself, that point man. yeah do well it at yourself, that point man they here. sounded good and um i used them um a disc well i was gonna say disc man it wasn't it was a panasonic uh portable uh cd player and i would use my cds at that point but once i got a laptop uh, it was my ibook and i got an ipod with it a few months later i started ripping all my cds but I ripped them into AAC because it was better quality and it took less space, and I didn't have much space on that uh, little uh, iBook. The first time I ever got to touch an MP3 player was my first like long-term girlfriend. Her father had bought her one. It was a 32 meg MP3 player in 2002, and I remember uh, she had loaded it with like nothing but like popcorn, like like Blink 182 and Newfound Glory. So I remember what? we were sitting at the old port in Montreal just one day, just listening over and over to the same like five songs that were on there, six songs that were on there. One ear pod each. Let's move from 1998 to August 1999, the Samsung SPH M100. It was the first phone with MP3 capabilities. Yeah. 
So it launched in August 1999 in Asia and uh, in 2000 in the US as the Uproar. So originally in 99, it launched with uh, 60 megs. And then uh, in September 99, you could get 32 megs on your phone. The number one single on the Billboard Top 100 for that month of August 1999 was Christina Aguilera's Genie in a Bottle. Young Christina. She was a big hit uh, when I worked at the uh, music department of that electronic store. People loved, loved, loved her. Finally, the last major sort of like first in the market here in terms of all these audio, portable audio music options was the iPod Mark I, which came out October 23rd, 2001. The number one single on the Billboard Top 100 for that week was Jennifer Lopez's I'm Real, the Murder Me remix featuring Job Rule. Um, you know, this is kind of the end of the road for us in terms of like firsts, right? So everything else is kind of been covered. Now, digitally, we've entered the first phone with MP3 capabilities and the first major, robust, large-scale audio player um, portal. People kind of laughed at Apple when they came out with this. Like, this this is 2001 Apple, right? They could do a lot wrong. Uh, Jobs had only been back for like four years. And um, people were saying, what? You can only use this on a Mac with Firewire. It costs how much? And uh, it ended up being the biggest hit of like the early 2000s, like the, the most wanted consumer item uh, ever up to that point. And uh, it just took them to finally put it on the PC because when it initially came out, Steve Jobs did not want to let PC users use an iPod. Did you know that? I did. And then he finally ran into realizing how much money he's leaving on the table. I, You know, Jobs, it was never about money, right? It was always about being right and having the best product. So... Uh, it took a lot of convincing to get him to put um, iTunes on a PC. And uh, it was funny because when Bill Gates first saw an iPod, he said, oh, can you can you use that on a PC? And the answer was no. But it was pretty amazing. My first iPod was the third gen one in 2004. A sort of quick aside, um, the iPod allowed for the rise of the digital retailer, right? So the iTunes store opened uh, in the fall of 2003. And my question is, what was the first thing you ever bought from a digital music retailer? Wow, that's a really good question. And the thing is, is I did not really buy much music from iTunes. I used to buy CDs because I still had a stereo. And anything I wanted on my iPod, I would still buy the CD and then just uh, rip it to an MP3 or an AAC file and do it that way. I th- I I have not bought much off iTunes even to this day. I think the one thing I did buy off of iTunes is I wanted a collection of classical music. And I bought that collection because I couldn't find a decent one at a store and I wanted something soon so I just downloaded that uh, but that was into like into like the mid to late 2000s for me I had won an iTunes gift card at a music festival in 2005 or 6 I want to say and I downloaded some French Canadian rock that I couldn't find otherwise so some Eric Lapointe and I was going to say the, was it Eric Lapointe yeah it was the theme song from the classic Canadian movie Bon Cop Bad Cop wow uh, and I really, really wanted to listen to it at home and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I didn't want to buy the CD, right? So I kind of no. just legally decided to use uh, an iTunes gift card. And I think the uh, the balance kind of got lost uh, in the sands of time, unfortunately. <laughs> so who knows about that? I also uh, didn't buy a ton of music. Usually what I'll try to do is I'll try to buy very local music where I know the music is going, the, the proceeds are going directly um, to the artists. So I want to help friends out in that way. So I tend to do that. Well, uh, iTunes made it made piracy like almost obsolete because most people we've learned if something's easy to pay for and is fairly priced they'll go that route instead of absolutely 
Absolutely. Uh, and with that, Angela, we bring the portable uh, music uh, history guide uh, to a close here. Uh, and I want to thank you for being a willing participant, letting me uh, question you on your personal life. Yeah, I, I had a fun time with this. It just, uh, my memory is not what it used to be. So I had a hard time remembering certain things, but uh, a lot of fun, especially once we got into the 90s, then like it was a lot easier for me to remember because that was my big music time for me. And with that, Angelo, I will see you in the paranormal section, my friend. See you there. What could space be? What could it be made of? What the heck is all those lights out there? Is this just a black curtain with holes in it? I don't know. I'm trying to find out. Double density. Welcome back to Double Density. As always, we're switching gears from tech to the paranormal. A couple of episodes ago, I introduced the concept of the Double Density. Wheel of Fortune, Angela, guess what? I'm bringing it back this episode, my friend. On the board, we have ghosts, time travel, and UFOs. And my friend, I want you to go ahead and spin that, and let's see where this lands. Are you ready? All right. Let's do this. Spinning. We have landed on UFOs. So this week we have a story uh, born of Reddit about a man who accidentally created a UFO panic in uh, New Jersey eight years ago uh, and who finally confessed to it. So on the uh, confessions subreddit over at Labor Day weekend, someone had posted a story about how uh, he and a board friend had created uh, one of these um, sort of uh, large scale uh, plastic bag um Solar balloons. Solar balloons. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Yes. And so what they had done is they had launched the solar balloons and it, it had flown away. It had gotten away from them and they had thought nothing of it. And then um, over uh, central New Jersey that night, a ton of calls came in to local police stations about uh, seeing a large scale UFO. I vaguely remember this uh, coming up in the Paracast forums uh, back then. And uh, again, this kind of points out to me how easily things are misidentified when you're not used to seeing something like that in the sky. Sort of like going back a few weeks ago when I said I saw that UFO at Disney World, which was actually a kid's balloon, but because it looked so out of place in the sky, it really messes your brain. So it is technically, I guess, a UFO in the fact that it's an unidentified flying object, but... No, I, I would say in this case, it's a UFO unidentified floating object. Oh, fancy, fancy, Brian. Look at you playing with words. Uh, yeah, and the thing is, is that it did, it does look like if you, that picture looks really weird. What the hell is that flying in the sky that looks like a Tetris piece? Yeah, it looks like it's shaped like an L almost, right? In the yeah. picture provided in the story on NJ.com. Super interesting. I thought it was very interesting. Uh, it's sort of like an anatomy of a hoax kind of thing. Yes, and the thing is, I, I really like when I see something out of the ordinary in the sky. Like if I see... Uh, on the rare occasion, you'll see like a fighter jet flying over or a low-flying military helicopter. Anything military actually is pretty cool to see flying in the sky, unless like you're in a war zone, then it's not cool. But if you see something for uh, demonstration purposes, I remember when I was a kid, the uh, space shuttle flew over uh, Quebec at one point on top of an airplane. Do you remember that? Yes. I mean, I remember of it. I was very young, but yes. Yes. Uh, And that was really cool to see. Or when you're driving near somewhere, there's a... um, hot air balloon competition going on those are really cool to see in the sky yeah we used to have one over by the st lawrence river when i was a kid um very very cool also kites we had a kite competition around here too or a kite festival 
Yes. Um, a lot of really fun aerial objects to see. Um, and I guess growing up with this sort of stuff, it's easier to be skeptical of it, knowing that there are so many man-made objects being launched from the ground on a continual basis, uh, like all four seasons of the year. But I don't blame people for freaking out. It's If you're not used to seeing something like that in the sky, then your mind goes to call like the authorities of some kind and say, hey, I'm seeing something really weird in the sky. Are the Russians attacking us or something? <laughs> A very man-made kind of question indeed. Uh, moving on, let's spin the wheel again, Angela. Go ahead, please. Yep, spin it real hard this time. Perfect. Oh boy, we're going to talk about time travel. Yay! <laughs> um, so we have a daily dot story here about. Uh, so I'm just going to read the headline because I think it's it's hilarious. Uh, YouTube time traveler says he has photographic proof he visited 16th century China. So this YouTube channel called Apex TV has a man with a uh, pixeled out face hiding his identity, claiming that he went back in time to China. And so this seems to be a big thing on YouTube, according to this article. It's like the. Uh... What was it last year where that hot knife threw everything? Or yes, will it blend? Yes, this is yes. like the new will it blend? Uh, will this time traveler uh, step forward? He claims that he was working in part of a government funded laboratory called Globus. A uh, very interesting, innocuous name. Uh, I love Glo- that. It sounds so evil. It sounds like, a, like, once again, like a James Bond villain. So while working at Globus, this man claims that uh, he witnessed this uh, machine called the Time Queen, which I find very interesting too. Uh, just a lot of like, really great made up names here. Yeah, the Time Queen sounds like a song, uh, and apparently, like, the furthest you could travel with this thing was 4,000 years. Does this um, hold up to your Dig Dug time theory of time travel? Yes, because we're moving forward in time, right? So you can go back and go up to the point in which you travel to. So yes, definitely uh, part of the Dig Dug time theory. But he's using this evidence of a uh, watch that was recently found um, in a tomb uh, some time back. And, uh, you know, because things never fall over in excavations or anything like that accidentally, right? Yeah, of course not. And uh, it, and even, like, so this Apex TV, uh, not exactly the best source for your news is what I'm understanding. I mean, and why are you hiding your face? Like, what do you, if you're telling the story um, and you're naming all these things, chances are um, those in power can narrow down who you are. I love that the uh, YouTube thumbnail hides his face and the picture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this man is, uh, his face is pixelated, his voice is altered. Uh, it's just like, the government already knows who you are, chances are, if you are naming all of these things and you're right, right? I well, think that like by process of British, Russian governments, he, they know him. Yeah, well, I mean, this man seems to have a Russian accent, could be fake, could be not, who knows? Um, uh, dare I say fake news? You, you could say fake news. And it says, if not, watch the entire video. No, thank you. No, I watched a lot of it. I... I'm not you watched swayed. It. Yeah, well, of course I had to. Come on, this is show research here, my friend. I, dis- I, I, I refuse to watch it, actually. I didn't even <laughs> give them the view. Uh, I would rather watch a video about retro games. Our final paranormal item of the week is... Uh, I'm just, I, once again, I'm going to read the headline because it amuses me so much. Connecticut, Connecticut man faces charges after shooting at quote-unquote ghost. So uh, <laughs> a man named Christian Devo of uh, Tallinn, Connecticut, 25 years old, um, shot... And what he believed to be a ghost. So police arrive on scene, and uh, this happened in late July. He is uh, due in court uh, as of last week, but we're recording ahead of time, so this is kind of confusing for us. But uh, So he's out on bail after uh, claiming that a ghost entered his home, and he was just merely shooting at it. Okay. Uh, instead of shooting a ghost with a gun, uh, guess what he should have shot it with? Nothing. A video camera. 
like that is such a dad joke that I walked into. I cannot believe I. I oh, all right. It wasn't even supposed to be a dad joke. It's just seriously. Okay, if if you believe in ghosts and you think they're the spirits or whatever, the undead, they can do all this stuff. What do you do? Shoot. What does shooting at it do other than like cause harm to your wall? So there's a couple of really interesting things about this article, uh, about the situation, is that he claimed that he shot above the intruder's head in order to scare it off. But the, uh, uh, the bullet holes found in the home were at about the three-foot mark, which suggests that he was shooting down. It was maybe a very small ghost. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. But uh, there's a lot of inconsistencies here, and he himself is a self-described uh, um, a paranormal investigator. So uh, Yeah, uh, I don't know what to think of this, like... First of all, what kind of paranormal investigator uh, has to carry a gun? Uh, what kind of dangerous tasks is he going on? Is he like Indiana Jones? Uh, I'm not quite sure. And it was very strange to hear that he tried to shoot at a ghost. If he's a paranormal investigator, he should know better than that. Ghosts uh, are uh, incorporeal. You cannot shoot them. Did he have a silver bullet? Yeah, maybe. I'm going to quote directly from the article here. When asked about the inconsistencies in the story, DeVoe told police that you just, quote, can't explain certain things. Like when you shoot at things for nothing. And one of those things he allegedly told law enforcement was, quote, seeing ghosts, end quote. Uh, all right, that's cool. Um, good luck with that. Uh, he's out on $5,000 uh, bail, and his uh, court date uh, is in the middle of September. What, <laughs> I, the, where was the ghost exactly? The, in the, the kitchen. In, in his own home? In his own home, yeah. He woke up, oh. heard something, fired his gun twice, and, was, and, and nothing. See, I don't know what to think about a paranormal investigator who has his own haunted house. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's taking he his work yeah. home with him. He claimed also that the unknown assailant was wearing a mask and hooded sweatshirt. Uh, I don't know how many ghosts dress up to scare you, but the ghosts I don't don't. Was it Halloween? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't understand. Apparently, he, uh, this is not the first time he's called police. In 2011, he also claimed that someone was trying to enter the uh his home in 2011 uh he also blamed it on a ghost then uh i i see a pattern <laughs> you think so yeah I, I think i see a pattern here uh i would hazard a guess that uh he may have other issues yes unfortunately i do uh, think so too uh, one of the funnier aspects of this miami herald article that i'll link to in the show notes is that uh, they have embedded video of um the uh, ghost did he actually uh, shoot no, a video camera no. oh. of the uh of bumps uh which stands for bigfoot ufo mysterious paranormal seekers so it's a a bunch of people who hunt ghosts for that's his team no they're just linking to paranormal investigators oh okay and if you want to go over it they have a weebly website that we'll also link to in the show notes because why not we're offering this up to everyone here uh take a look you can read about the members their mission statement some of their work there uh too uh but yeah uh i don't know i've never fired a gun at a ghost i don't know if you have i don't know how effective that is. if he's a paranormal investigator then how does he not understand that firing a gun at a ghost does not work my friend see like he's not going to get work after this like that's first rule of paranormal investigation is you should know that ghosts do not uh, do well with guns there's nothing uh, that they have uh, to shoot at. He's also the straight up like uh, the laughing stock of the you know the the ghost realm at this point. Right, like oh this guy fired a gun at us. What's that supposed to do? I know he didn't even use rock salt. Yeah, <laughs> there's so many more things he could have done. Also, like if he um, has had this issue in the past, you'd think that he'd be prepared to deal with this in the present. I think ghosts react better to tasers. Oh, that's an interesting <laughs> observation. Or, or microwaves. Any? Yes, yes, exactly. Microwaves make them believe that they're alive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, anyways, we'll, uh, we'll keep tabs on this uh, interesting case of a man firing his gun, uh, thinking that he's hitting 
ghosts when probably he's just waking up from a really really a bad dream and with that we're gonna bring episode 73 of a double density to a close you can go ahead and find us on facebook.com slash double density podcast same thing on instagram you can find us on twitter at double underscore density and also hit up double density.net you can see our pasty white faces you can find out where to subscribe to the podcast and all of the different services available you can listen to the newest episode directly on the website and you can click on the contact button to reach us directly angelo tune in next week as we don extravagant garbs and explore the janitorial closets of the great pyramids of giza i'll see you around my friend yeah and i'm gonna go change that picture I, i'm fed up with you calling me pasty <laughs> yeah get the buff tan one please yeah could you make sure that you're wearing a dad hat though i will perfect so everyone head on over to double intensity not and take a look at the dad hat picture um angel right. i'll see you next week see you brian No, you wrote that. Oh, shit. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm going to read that out then. You Uh, definitely wrote that. Yeah.